0: Okay, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 8. We'll look at verses 18 through 27 this morning. The text is also there in the bulletin on the next page. It starts off with Jesus seeing a crowd around him. Uh, Jesus attracted large crowds (laughs) everywhere he went. And at the same time, uh, he would say and do things that turned a lot of people off. Uh, Sometimes people would come to him, uh, expressing even a desire to follow him. And it would almost seem like he'd actively deter them and push them away with the things that he said. Uh, but he actually never does that. He, he never looks to stop people from following him. He's always inviting people to follow him. But he wants us to go into this relationship with him uh, with eyes wide open, right? He wants us uh, to know what relationship with him really means and what it will cost us. For, uh, and he says... It's, it's costly to follow him. Following him is uncomfortable. Uh, it means your world uh, gets turned upside down. It's costly. You need to come to grips with that, Jesus says. You, you have to uh, count the cost of following him. You have to realize what it is you're getting yourself into. Following Jesus is terrifying. And it's also wonderful. So maybe that cost is worth it. Uh, so let's talk about that. Um, let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> Father, we pray that you would give us the help of your spirit as we consider your word together now. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side, and a scribe came up to him and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So this crowd uh, that we see here, they've been hovering around Jesus for a while now. If you go back to, uh, you know, a few chapters back in the beginning of chapter 5, you know, they're there. This crowd is there when he sits down to preach the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, They probably grow. They're there when, uh, you know, the crowd might grow when when he comes down from the mountain. They're there, uh, and now they're here in Capernaum where he's been healing many people, as we've uh, talked about uh, last week. So Jesus sees this crowd that Matthew is pointing out is always following him, always accompanying him. He sees this crowd following him, and something about that makes him say, let's go to the other side, uh, to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, right? This this great freshwater lake that's there in the northern part of Israel. Uh, Let's go to the other side. So it could be translated uh, legitimately, and I think uh, probably should be translated, because he saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. So it might seem like, you know, at first glance, he's trying to get away from uh, the crowd, right? He's got this big crowd, too many people, claustrophobic or something. Gotta, let's, go, let's go get to the other side, just us, uh, us few disciples. Um. Uh, but I don't think that's what he's saying or, or doing. I, I think, yeah, there are times when he withdraws from the crowds to pray. Uh, There's times when he withdraws from the crowds to give sort of private lessons to the smaller group of his disciples, you know, the 12 especially. Uh, But I think he's looking at the crowds here and seeing an opportunity, actually. So Jesus sees this as an opportunity to invite those who are interested to follow him. Uh, Because he gives these orders. He says, let's go to the other side. And then he has a couple of conversations with people coming up to him uh, about them joining him. And in one of these conversations, he says explicitly, follow me. He's saying, he's inviting. This is an opportunity to invite people from the crowd to follow him. It's it's just that uh, really what he's saying is, follow me. Let's go to a place where you don't want to go. That's what he's saying. Uh, The invitation is what it is, an invitation. It's also a challenge because following him is not comfortable. Uh, So where are they? They're in Capernaum. It's on the northwestern shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, This place, this region, is called Galilee of the Gentiles several times in the Scriptures, even in Matthew's Gospel, I think, uh, earlier, Uh, because it's where these different territories meet. It's it's the borderlands um, where Jewish and non-Jewish people mix, the Sea of Galilee. And going to the other side of the sea, going to the east side of this lake, It's predominantly Gentile over there, right? So non-Jewish. It's not a pleasant prospect for the Jews who are with him. Uh, More than just sort of leaving the security and comfort of their own home, it means going out among the Gentiles, the unclean Gentiles. So at worst, you know, certain people in this crowd would have despised the idea being exclusively nationalistic and disdainful toward uh, Gentiles. At best, they would have felt awkward and uncomfortable about it. You know, if we just have nothing in common with those people over there. Why would we go over there? <clears throat> so uh, he sees this crowd, presumably of mostly Jewish people at this point, and he invites them to go along with him and hang out with and do some ministry among uh, some Gentiles. And a scribe comes up to him and says, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. It's actually quite remarkable that a scribe was telling Jesus that he would follow him, even, even if it meant going to Gentile countries, which, which is what uh, Jesus is indicating here. Because the scribes, you know, these are the teachers of Israel. It's usually the scribes and the Pharisees who are described as Jesus' enemies, right? The, the scribes, they seem to be most acutely aggravated by Jesus most of the time, especially for things like this, where he seems to be so interested in the Gentiles, so favorably disposed toward them. So uh, it's a pretty good start for the scribe. Uh, we're not sure exactly what happened with him or with the other person uh, who approaches Jesus here in uh, conversation, whether either of them continued to follow Jesus or not. It doesn't say. Matthew uh, sort of leaves that hanging. It's like open-ended, like a, like a question uh, for the reader. You know, it's possible to hear what Jesus says here and still to follow him if you want to. That, that door is open if you're interested. But Jesus wanted to point out to him, to the scribe, you know, what it really means to follow him. And maybe this sounds uh, really so obvious that it's silly, but following Jesus means following Jesus, (laughs) following him, right? Uh, it, It means the focus and the center of your life becomes him, It doesn't just mean going to new and different places that you've never been before. It doesn't just mean uh, doing new and different activities that you've never done before, living a different kind of life that you've never lived before. It doesn't just mean that. It means doing everything that you do with him because you're following him. So the point of following him is being with him, wherever he is, wherever he goes, wherever he leads. And here Jesus points out, Uh, He's going nowhere. He's going nowhere. So it says in verse 20, Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests. The son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He doesn't even have the security and comfort of a home in this world. He's a stranger in this world. He's a pilgrim wherever he goes. Uh, And by association, we can expect to be strangers and pilgrims with him. So Jesus gives you fair warning up front here if you think that following him means moving up in the world. He'll disabuse you of that notion very quickly. If you want to go somewhere, you'd be better off following foxes and birds who at least have holes in the ground or, or nests in the trees to return to. If you want a place to feel like you belong, In this world, some place, some physical, geographical, social community where you feel like you belong in this world, you're never going to find it. Not really, not ultimately. Following Jesus means finding your home in him. It means finding your belonging in him and with him, which will mean feeling actually like an alien in this world, wherever you go, wherever you are. The trajectory of Jesus' life is, uh, is to head out into the wilderness, off the map, into places that are nowhere, uh, insignificant, even disreputable places, unpleasant places. In fact, his path leads to places that are shameful and terrible. So to those who are climbing the rungs of society, who are going places in life, who have great potent- potential to do great things, and uh, who are upwardly mobile and all that, uh, Jesus might as well be on a dead-end road. in in the minds of that kind of person, those kind of people. The only worthwhile thing about the kinds of places Jesus is going is that he is going there. So the point of following him is being with him. Wherever he is, wherever he goes, wherever he leads, that's the point. Being with him. That means following the Son of Man—that's what he calls himself. It means being with the Son of Man. So this is Jesus' favorite self-designation, shows up uh, so often in the Gospels. The way that he refers to himself, um, and uh, <clears throat> and this is the first time that he uses it in Matthew's Gospel. First time you see that title. It's a title uh, that he applies to himself, the Son of Man. Uh, but it's a—it's it, one that we have a hard time understanding. What does that mean that he's the Son of Man? It is a little bit mysterious, a little bit enigmatic. Uh, <clears throat> on a basic level, it's quite mundane. It, I mean, the son of man it just basically means a human being, right? That's, uh, that's literally what a son of man, or a son of a human, is a human. And, uh, and so Jesus is the human being. And there's something intriguing and significant just about the mundaneness of that, just that he calls himself basically, I'm the human being. I'm the son of man, because there are so many prophecies in the Old Testament where God is exalting that son of man, where he is honoring and glorifying the son of man. So one of the main ones uh, is from our Old Testament reading that Rob read, and uh, I appreciate how you read it, Rob, at the beginning there. It says, I saw in the night visions, instead of I saw in the night vision, like, you know. Uh, <clears throat> it's right. Is in the nighttime. He saw visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days. This is the Most High God. And was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So the Son of Man is this mysterious human being. He's a glorious human being. He's actually a heavenly human being coming with the clouds of heaven. Who is the king of an everlasting kingdom, the very kingdom of heaven, familiar language to us in Matthew's gospel. And that kingdom includes people from all nations and languages. And that means Gentiles because Gentiles literally is that word nations. That nations and Gentiles that's the same word. <clears throat> so the son of man is king of humanity. He's king of the Jews and the Gentiles, not just the Jews. He's king of humanity. He's king of the Gentiles, which is something the Jews didn't really want to hear. And to their places, that's somewhere they just didn't want to go. They wanted, they wanted special treatment and exclusive access as God's chosen people. That's kind of what it feels like when God sets his love on you first, before he sets his love on somebody else. You know, Before you see his love being extended to somebody else, you feel like, I'm special because I, I had his love first. And that's how they felt. We have his love first, so we're important. We're somebody. And they wanted special treatment and exclusive access because of it. They didn't want to follow a king who would put the Gentiles on level terms with them. He doesn't love you more or better. They didn't want to follow a king who would make all these nations equal to one another in his kingdom, in the church. They didn't want to follow a king who would make such a big deal about people from other backgrounds because they wanted I want to be the one that he makes a big deal about right so when the the son of man invited them to follow him go hang out with him and minister to the gentiles with him they're they're, in general the crowds aren't interested in that so uh, according to them Jesus is going nowhere following Jesus is terrifying because he'll often lead you to places that you find unpleasant or unfruitful or even dangerous Uh, to to desolate wastelands that just don't make sense to you why he's going there, why we're going there with him, Uh, and to other people that maybe you'd just rather not be with. But following him means you get him, and you get to be with him with the Son of Man, the King of Humanity. So the point of following him is being with him, wherever he is, wherever he goes, wherever he leads. And if that's not enough for you to want to follow him, if that doesn't transform your perspective on where he might be leading you, seeing that place is good because he's there, then uh, I mean, you might as well turn back now. But if you do follow him, then being with him will change you. It will change fundamental aspects of who you are, fundamental aspects of what you love. So if you can't stand to let go of the old in order to follow Jesus, then just don't pretend you're actually interested in following Jesus. That's the next point uh, that he's making, the, next, the point of the next little conversation Jesus has with somebody. It says, another of the disciples said to him, in verse 21, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Uh, <clears throat> so just so we're clear, this guy is not uh, uh, coming to Jesus and saying, hey, my dad just died like yesterday or something, um, and his body is waiting to be buried. Let me, just, let me just do that first, and then I'll be with you. Uh, biblical scholars, I think, all agree that this was sort of a, this is a way of saying, my father's getting on in years. Let me attend to him. Uh, Let me perform all the filial duties that are expected of me as a good son, uh, and then I'll follow, right? So it was a way of saying that his priority was to his family. His priority was to his father, uh, and, and that excluded Jesus, actually, pushed Jesus back to a lower priority. Uh, he was interested in following Jesus after he's freed from all other more pressing engagements. After all the other really important priorities in life are seen to, <clears throat> then I'd like to follow you, Jesus, when I've got nothing better to do. <laughs> <Right. clears throat> but this, uh, <clears throat> this means he wasn't actually interested in Jesus as the Lord of his life. The true Lord who overrides all other priorities who reorganizes and relativizes everything else in life. So, Jesus put it in painfully stark terms to him, uh, which is probably what he needed to be able to see what was happening. Um, This is exactly what it means to follow him. He says, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Um, That sounds pretty painful. But having anything in your life as a higher priority than Jesus, is spiritual death. That's what Jesus says. It's spiritual death. If Jesus himself is not your life, the center and heartbeat of your whole life, then you are dead to God. As extreme as it might sound, uh, to Jesus there's really no difference between those who are spiritually dead to God and corpses needing to to be buried. There's no real distinction between somebody who has some good, important priority like a family, but they've put that a little higher than Jesus is a priority. Uh, nothing different between that person and a corpse needing to be buried. So true life is is only found in following Jesus. If you want to be actually alive according to Jesus, you follow Jesus and have him as your most pressing engagement. He's the new core that reorders everything else in your life. You become alive to God when the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, unites you to Jesus. When you come into an intimate, personal relationship with Jesus, that's life. And everything else is death. <clears throat> so following Jesus, being with him, even being one with him, will change you. It'll change your priorities. And it'll change everything in your life. And this is how Jesus puts it uh, a little differently in another place. In Luke's gospel, it's recorded uh, in Luke chapter 14. And this is also printed there in the bulletin down at the bottom of that page. It says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he can't be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then later, verse 33, Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So following Jesus is terrifying because it means renouncing everything that used to make you you apart from him. Following Jesus costs you everything. It costs you your very self, your self-centered self, your self-centered sense of identity and significance, and worth, and purpose, and meaning, all of that that you were finding apart from Jesus, it's got to die. It's got to go. You're going to lose it. Following Jesus means crucifying the old, and it means embracing a new life in him. Following Jesus means that he has your attention. He has your allegiance. He has your heart in a way that makes even your good love for your family members. That's a good thing. But it makes even your good love for your family members look like hatred in comparison, really. It won't be hatred. It'll be good love. But it'll look, in comparison to uh, your love for Christ, it'll look like hatred. So following Jesus means means being with him wherever he is, wherever he goes, wherever he leads. That's now the most important thing in your life. Being with him. And in the context of our passage in Matthew, being alive to Jesus, following Jesus, desiring to be with him where he is, means joining him in his ministry to the nations, to people who are different from us. That's what his disciples are doing when they get into the boat with him. They're responding to his call to join him, come be with me, as we go hang out with these other people, with the Gentiles, right? Uh, The Son of Man the king of humanity, is on this mission of advancing his international kingdom. And there's a lot of details in this uh, second paragraph that we're going to look at that remind us of the story of Jonah, which we looked at um, last summer. So Jesus is the true Jonah. He's sent to the pagans in the east to preach the gospel. All right, so you remember the story of Jonah. He's the self-righteous, nationalistic prophet who heard God's call to go east to Nineveh But he refused, and he tried to run from God, and he fled in the opposite direction. He boarded a ship to flee from the presence of the Lord and go west instead of east, and God sent a great windstorm. He sent a great windstorm to stop Jonah and turn him around, and Jonah was asleep in the boat because he couldn't stand to be awake. He couldn't stand to be aware of his own rebellion against God. But the sailors woke him up and asked him if he could do anything to help, right? They petitioned him to do something about their situation. So Jonah confessed his sin and told them, you know, throw me overboard and God will save you. And then God stopped the storm and he spared the lives of all the sailors and they feared God and they praised God. And they marveled. Right. Lots of details that are similar to our paragraph there. So when Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Jesus didn't get in the boat to run away from God like Jonah but to go where God the Father wanted him, to preach the gospel to the Gentiles of the East. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. Not asleep because he couldn't stand the brokenness of his relationship with God, like Jonah, but asleep because he was perfectly content with his relationship with the Father. Perfectly happy to do his Father's will, wherever that took him. <clears throat> And they, the disciples, went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? So Jesus wasn't at the mercy of the storm, uh, like Jonah. He was the master of the storm. Who is this man? Who is this man? Psalm 89 asks the question, O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord? With your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. So God's the one who does stuff like this. Who is this man? Following Jesus means following this one, the man who is our Lord and God whose mission takes him to places we'd rather not go, whose path is through the storm, yet whose very presence ultimately means salvation for us. Just being with him means salvation. Jesus calls the disciples uh, little faiths here uh, because they were more overwhelmed by the circumstances of the storm around them than they were by the sheer fact of being with Jesus. Just the simple reality of his presence is more world-shattering than this storm. Salvation has already come to them because Jesus was already with them. Period. It's as simple as that. Remember, Matthew makes a big deal about who Jesus is. He calls him Emmanuel, God with us. God with us means salvation. God with us. To follow Jesus means believing his very presence with you, means salvation, whatever circumstances you're in. Wherever you are, wherever He goes, wherever He leads you, His presence means salvation. Jesus doesn't promise to stop every storm in your life. That's not the point of a passage like this. Like, oh, if you could tap into the right kind of faith that would move Jesus to, to still the, the winds and the waves and, and calm the storm in your life, um, that's not the promise that we get here. Uh, he promises to be God with you in the storms. That is salvation, for him to be with you. It's terrifying because of where you might find yourself, but it's wonderful because of the fact that the Son of Man is there with you and he won't leave you or forsake you. Uh, there's some profound symbolism uh, here in this passage that helps connect it again to the context of Jesus inviting his disciples to follow him, in particular in his mission to the Gentiles. Uh, We've talked about this over the years, that, you know, the sea in the Bible, uh, the sea is, uh, and especially the stormy sea, is a symbol of the chaotic, rebellious, you know, sort of heaving and uprising of the nations against God. So the nations, they were intimidating and fearful to the Jews, like a stormy sea, right? Just as the sea during a great storm is intimidating and fearful. And the Jews were not a seafaring people. They were known for being not a seafaring people. Whether you're talking about literally going out on boats in the water, you know, or figuratively going out among the Gentiles, they're not a seafaring people. But the Son of Man has been given dominion over all nations, and he's called his people to join him in his international ministry to become fishers of men, which means you've got to get out there on the water, right? What we perceive among the nations to be a great tumult and defiance of his rule is something that just doesn't even disturb his rest. The Son of Man is not agitated by current events in the world. His kingdom is an everlasting, uh, his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. His authority over heaven and earth is permanent and nothing threatens it. He is able to still the waters of creation with a word, and that's a sign of his power. That means something. It's a sign of his power to still the nations with a word. So Isaiah 17 says, Ah, the thunder of many peoples, they thunder like the thundering of the sea. Ah, the roar of nations, they roar like the roaring of mighty waters. The nations roar like the roaring of many waters, but he will rebuke them and they will flee far away. So Jesus' disciples were afraid of the storm. They're afraid of the circumstances they faced, uh, where they found themselves. They're afraid of what it was costing them to follow Jesus. They're afraid of where he was leading them. They're afraid of this whole mission he's invited them on, afraid of everything they're getting themselves into with Jesus. They didn't see the reality of who they were with, the reality of their relationship with the Son of Man as more overwhelming than where they were or where they were going. They were terrified by where they were. They were reluctant to go where he was leading them. But ultimately, the most important and wonderful thing was that Jesus was with them. Simple as that. Simple, obvious, basic fact. And the Son of Man had mercy on them in their weakness, and he delivered them. He delivered them in ways he's not promised to deliver us, like by stilling this the seas and the storms of our life, right? But he's already saved them. He's already saved them by coming into the world, by coming to them, by calling them to himself, by sharing his life with them and spending time with them, simply being with them. He's already saved them. Before he even calmed the storm, storm. Jesus already saved his disciples from a life apart from God because he's God with us. They could barely conceive of who this man was, uh, who was with him in the boat, uh, but they were starting to become overwhelmed with his glory. That's, that's the good news right there at the end about the disciples that they marveled and asked the question, what sort of man is this? You know, and that's the life of a disciple. That's the life of a disciple, a follower of Jesus. That's what it means to come alive to God through faith in Jesus. The point of following him is being with him wherever he is, wherever he goes, wherever he leads, and coming to a deeper more profound, more wondrous knowledge of just who this man is that is with us. Even just asking that question more every day, who is this? This isn't just some remote story about other people removed from us by thousands of years and thousands of miles. This same Jesus lives with us through his spirit. He lives with you through his spirit. You live with him. Following him, might be terrifying uh, if all you can think about is the cost and the circumstances or where he's leading you. Jesus does want you to consider all of that, the reality of it. But, but all the more, consider the reality that following the Son of Man is wonderful for the sheer fact that the King of heaven and earth has invited you to be with him. Can you believe that? Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, you've made known to us the true cost of following you it's dying to self dying to all of our worldly dreams of greatness comfort and belonging you've also made known to us the true wonder of following you simply being with you wherever you lead and belonging to you and you belonging to us Have mercy on us in our weaknesses, in our fears, when we're overwhelmed with the circumstances of our lives, when we're in distress in the places that you lead us. Have mercy on us and comfort us with the knowledge of your presence. Help us to believe your presence. Give us the desire and the faith to follow you and to join you in your mission to live as strangers and pilgrims and aliens with you in this world. Being strangers and aliens and pilgrims is bearable if it means we're with you. Help us to trust that you're the, uh, the Lord, truly the Lord, not just of our little group here, but the Lord of all nations, the Lord of heaven and earth. Help us to find courage in the salvation that your relationship with us is. We pray in your name. Amen.